Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our special guest today and good friend, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, who's Professor of Communications here at Biola University, uh, and an expert in particular in communications in marriage. He also serves as one of the, he's one of the founders and serves as one of the partners in Biola's uh, Center for Marriage and Relationships, does a, does a ton of speaking all over the country, doing marriage workshops uh, for Family Life Ministries. Uh, so, and, and we're here today particularly because Tim has written a fascinating new book that puts a, a different twist on marriage and communication in marriage than you might have thought about before. Uh, the book is entitled Defending Your Marriage. Tim, tell our listeners exactly what the book is about. Well, yeah, the, the, the complete title is Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And you guys know as authors, when you put together a book proposal, you always put together books that are like common to the one that you want to try to write. I could not find one book that was specifically about marriage and spiritual battle. There's a ton of great books wow. about spiritual battle. There's a ton of great books. but And there's some books that might have a chapter on like the family. Uh, like Russell Moore has a great new book out uh, on families and marriage. And I think he has one chapter on spiritual battle. But I couldn't find one book that talked about marriage and spiritual battle. Imagine what the Apostle Paul would think about that when he specifically links anger as a foothold for the devil. And yet, you know, every marriage book would talk about conflict, but almost no marriage books from a Christian perspective would link it to spiritual battle. Why, why do you think that's so? Why, why do you think there's such a dearth of material out there that, it, that addresses what seems to us to be a, a, you know, an intersection that's really worth talking about? Well, Scott, I think, uh, I, I think that one of the strongest, most enduring stereotypes of Christians is that we're anti-intellectual. Uh, that we put our brains on hold as we embrace issues of faith. And so when it comes to the devil, for crying out loud, right, a, a, a literal Satan, it, it just feels weird to us. Like, I had a Christian friend tell me when I was going to write this book, he literally said to me, he's a writer and a Christian speaker, he said, Tim, do you really want to be known as the devil guy? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about that. And you know what's funny? I don't want to be known as the devil guy. I really don't, but I, I just felt compelled to write this book after a couple of personal experiences and, you know, rubbing shoulders with Clint Arnold, you know, speaking of Talbot, Clint's a world-class theologian who's written on spiritual warfare from Paul's perspective. And so my personal experience and plus reading Clint's book really convicted me that I give lip service to spiritual battle. If you were to ask me as a Christian, do you believe in the devil and do you believe in spiritual battle? I'd say, well, yeah, of course. But it, it did not impact my life one bit, nor did it impact my marriage. So you mentioned twice personal experiences and just left it hanging there. In a book on spiritual warfare and marriage, you've got to <laughs> unpack at least one of those for us. So here's what happened. Um there was a large church in Southern California that was between pastors, and they asked if I would consider for a year being an interim teaching pastor. And, you know, adding that to being a professor at Biola University, that was a big decision. So I told them I'd obviously have to think about it, pray about it. Well, then 
just as that happened, I started to have violent dreams. I mean, dreams that were mm. so real and so violent. Like, like it was always the same dream that people were coming up the stairs to our bedroom and they weren't there to rob us. They were there to kill me and my wife. And it was so specific that I would get up out of bed, literally uh, assume a fighting stance by the door, waiting for these guys to come through the door that I was going to try to, you know, intervene and tackle them or whatever. And then eventually I'd realize, Hey, nobody's coming through the door. Why didn't the alarm go off? Why didn't the dog bark? And, and the hallway was empty. Okay. This went on for three days. Then I get a call from one of the elders of the church, just checking up on me saying, Hey, we're praying for your decision as well. Is there anything specifically we can pray? So I, I told him about my busy schedule, my teaching load. And here it is is the end of the conversation, and I am leery to bring up these dreams. And I finally say to him, hey, can I be honest with you? I'm also having these incredibly violent dreams. And there was dead silence on the other end. And he goes, hey, Tim, I'm calling the elders together tonight. You're under spiritual attack. and wow. We need to pray for you. But, but here's why I wrote the book. Why is it that I didn't want to mention to an elder who's asking me for prayer requests, I almost went the entire phone conversation and never brought up that I was under spiritual attack. What was it that that stopped me from doing that? And I think it's pride. I think it's the fact that I have a PhD and and am I really going to admit that I might be under spiritual attack? That just seems so weird to me and yet yet it was supremely unbiblical. Well, let's before we get into some of the specifics about how this relates to marriage, you talk about some of the things we just need to know about Satan and demons. Give us like 101 on the core truths about how Satan works, about the nature of demons, and then let's see how we see some of these lies translate specifically to marriage. Yeah, so uh, Satan 101 is that Satan was an angel in charge of worship. He was a cherubim. And uh, and apparently became jealous of God, wanted a place on in the universe that he would rule. Now, there's not a ton about the actual fall of Satan. There are some passages from Isaiah and Ezekiel that are a little bit debated, but a lot of people feel they are describing both an earthly king, but then they're also describing Satan's fall. And so we know that Satan wages war against God. We know that he's defeated, and we know that God makes an interesting decision to ban Satan and angels that fought with him. We now call those angels demons. And they were banished, but they were banished to planet Earth. So here you have Adam and Eve, the first couple, in paradise, having a unique relationship with God, and, and yet Satan is banished to Earth and has access to Adam and Eve in paradise. Now, he comes in the form of a serpent, but, but we have very vivid passages that talk about the tactics of Satan. How did he actually go about getting Adam and Eve to distrust God and eventually rebel against him? Uh, so that I have a whole chapter on just the Genesis narrative of how Satan was able to separate Adam and Eve psychologically. There's an interesting phrase in Genesis when she does sin, Eve, she says, and he, she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. 
So a lot of theologians believe Adam was there, but didn't support her, didn't defend her, and that Satan was able to psychologically split the two. Um, so just know in the book, I, I have a reader who pops up every once in a while. I absolutely stole this from Peter Kraft. I give him full credit, a, a wonderful apologist. But at that point, the reader steps in and just says, hey, I don't get it. Why would God do that? Why would he take Satan and banish him from heaven, but send him to earth and have access to this uh, couple? And so the book is filled with apologetics, trying to answer questions like that. Um, so Satan 101 is that Um, Every New Testament writer talks about spiritual battle. 25% of everything Jesus says is centered on spiritual battle. And John even goes so far as to say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what does that look like? How do you flesh out such a powerful statement like that? And that's what I try to do in the book is to say – through culture, how is it possible that Satan is creating a culture that is antithetical to the spiritual disciplines, is antithetical to being Christ followers? And I explore a couple of different cultural trends, not to say all of culture is bad. Of course, that's not true. But there's parts of culture that seem to be really opposed to following Jesus in practical ways. Tim, before we apply this to marriage, l- let me back up just a little bit. W- what, what do you say to the skeptic that says, come on, we're in the 21st century, angels, demons, Satan, seriously? You know, w- what do you say to the skeptic? Well, I like what Keith Fernando said. Keith Fernando is a theologian who wrote a powerful book on spiritual battle. He said, listen, we believe in angels, we believe in demons, and believe in a literal Satan, not because we have empirical proof, but because the Scripture affirms it. And we believe it on the authority of Scripture. And again, that's where we get all those unbelievable statistics about how many times the New Testament writers talk about Satan. Jesus absolutely uh, interacted with a literal Satan in his own tempting uh, with Lucifer. So, So we're kind of in a place of saying, do we believe the Bible is authoritative? Do we believe the Bible accurately reflects reality? Or are we going to go in more of an Enlightenment-type sense that I only trust what I can empirically prove? So, Scott, I really think it's a gut check for Christians to say, listen, I don't get to cherry-pick from the Bible what I think is appropriately suitable for the modern hearer. I have to take the Bible cover to cover. And the Bible, cover to cover, it starts in Genesis with the tempting of Adam and Eve and ends in Revelation with the the great battle in which uh, Lucifer, the dragon, is thrown into uh, imprisonment. So it's cover to cover, and, and we really have to take Scripture as being authoritative, and that's why uh, we believe in it, not because we can prove it via science. And so, again, I think as an academic, I want uh, to empirically prove these things. But I, as a Christian, I believe in the authority of the Bible, and if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in spiritual battle. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It seems to me that one of the things that motivates that skepticism is just the general anti-supernatural view of the world, just just in general. Um, and it seems like at the philosophical level, what you'd said about, you know, the, the, the only things that we can know are the things that we can verify with our senses. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the worldview that we need to to assess and evaluate. One, one more on that. Uh, you, you cite, I think, a pretty well-known quotation from C.S. Lewis 
about how we approach this area. Uh, tell our listeners about that and how it sort of governs your approach to this. Yeah, Lewis, of course, this was his most popular book. It's not mere Christianity. His most popular book is The Screwtape Letters, where he very creatively imagines communications between a senior devil and an apprentice. Uh, and I have a whole chapter on that, by the way. One of the funnest chapters of the book is I took the screw tape letters and particularly highlighted sections where Lewis talks about love, marriage, and commitment and how Satan and demons want to undermine that. So it's a really fun chapter. But Lewis has a very famous quote that says, listen, <clears throat> we, we, we can make two mistakes with Satan. We can attribute everything to him or we attribute nothing to him. And I think the modern church, we are not in danger of attributing everything to here, Satan. Here. I think, uh, you know what I mean? Here, here. I go up to my friends. When I was writing the book, I interviewed couples. This was so interesting. And I said to them, hey, how many times in the life of your marriage have you been under spiritual attack? And the answer I got, the average answer was zero. Wow. Because I then later asked them, okay, and when I said spiritual battle, what did you imagine? Like, what did you envision? And they envisioned what Hollywood envisions, right? Um, a, a person levitating in a bed, um, <laughs> people speaking in guttural Latin phrases, right? Um, and I said, okay, if that's spiritual battle, then my wife and I have not experienced that either. But Satan was crafty in the garden. And, and in Hebrew, crafty means subtle. So I argue that most Christian marriages, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, they are under spiritual attack. But Satan's greatest tool is to disguise that so that we don't associate spiritual attack with the dramatic. Tim, you identify three lies that Satan has fostered, and it seems like they've been bought in the wider culture, also in marriage. If we can, let's take them one by one and bring some clarity for us. The first one is you contrast marriage as contract versus marriage as covenant. Yeah. Um, so we're in the divorce culture today where people now view marriage. Unlike my father, my father was in a difficult marriage for 48 years, but he stayed in it mm. because he made a pro he made a promise and it was, he stayed in it for the kids, for me and my two older brothers. Today, people have the exact opposite impression of marriage. Uh, I divorce for the kids. Why should the kids grow up seeing me unhappy? Uh, my happiness, I have a right to it, and I'm not going to stay in a marriage where uh, another person has abdicated the marriage or they're not putting in as much effort as I do. Well, that's a contractual view of marriage. Um, <clears throat> we hired a person to paint our house. Well, like, like anybody, we only paid them half. Right. And we'll pay you the second half when you finish painting our house and we judge the quality of your work. Then you'll get the second half. And I think people enter marriage the exact same way. Mm. Hey, listen, I'll put in 100 percent if you put in 100 percent. But there's no way I'm doing 100 percent. You're doing 70 percent or 50 percent or 40 percent. I'm not going to get walked on in this marriage. And if you're going to walk on me, then I'm out of here. I I'm leaving the marriage. Mm. And our view towards divorce has so changed today that it's not shameful. It's not it's not seen as even a black mark against you. So a lot of people today are like, yeah, I'll stay in this marriage. Uh, let's see where it goes. Let's see how this thing actually pans out. <clears throat> well, a covenantal approach is, listen, we're in this for life. And, and of course, we're going to have ups and downs and struggles. But I'm in this marriage not 
based on how well you do as my spouse. I'm in this marriage because I signed on to this for life. And from a Christian perspective, when you take away the idea of divorce, then a marriage can really flourish. But that's not the culture today. We've taken a very different approach to marriage today. That's really helpful. The the second lie that you discussed that Satan has kind of propagated is the multitasking marriage versus focused marriage. Can you explain that one? <laughs> so I do this. Uh, I do this. I'm going to do a shameless plug for my podcast with Dr. Chris Grace, <laughs> the psychology professor. Um, in, in our podcast, The Art of Relationships, uh, Dr. Grace has really opened my eyes to the fallacy of multitasking that we're now understanding from neurologists that multitasking is a myth. Basically, it means you're not doing anything well. You're just doing a bunch of different things. The brain just simply doesn't work that way. So uh, if, if we agree with Dallas Willard, uh, a brilliant writer on spiritual disciplines, that solitude is the central spiritual discipline, being silent and having your thoughts be focused just on God and not anything else, well, then Satan wants to get in and disrupt that. So what he wants to do is to inhibit our ability to be mindful and think about just one thing at a time, and that would be focusing on our relationship with God. So today, and I'm not anti-technology, but, but today we, we are, the results are coming in that technology is ruining our ability to be mindful, to just focus on one specific thing for a particular length of time. This is the research of Nicholas Carr. Um, so Satan is indirectly getting at solitude by creating a culture where very few of us can just sit in a room, be silent, and think just about one thing, be it God or a spouse or something like that. Um, so that's one way I think Satan is just kind of undercutting our ability to practice meditation, solitude, and be mindful. Let's look at the, the last one. These are really, really helpful and practical. Is romantic love completing us versus God fulfilling us? Gosh, Sean, this is probably the biggest one, right? We, we teach this wonderful class at Biola called the Christian Relationships class. Uh, we teach it with three different professors, John Lundy and his wife, a New Testament professor, uh, Dr. Chris Grace and myself. And I just say, listen, we are putting so much pressure on marriage, so much pressure on relationships, and God never intended marriage to be that. I think what St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find peace in God, and yet we want to find peace in relationships. We want our satisfaction, our identity, our self-image, all of that to rest on marriage. And I'm just saying to couples, listen, you will inherently be disappointed in marriage if you expect it to do only what God can do. But if you take a look at, at cinema, if you take a look at films or sitcoms, man, it, it promises over and over and over that you can find your soulmate, that you can find that person that completes you, and then then you'll finally be happy. And I think the book of Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, trust me, education won't do that, career won't do that, kids won't do that, marriage will not do that. The, you were created to have a relationship with God, and if that's not in place— Everything's going to be disappointing. Tim, let's be a little more specific on some of this for for particular couples. You know, a lot. A lot I mean, lots of most marriages have no, kind of normal ups and downs. Uh, you have conflicts, you resolve them. You have other conflicts, you resolve them. How do you distinguish between what's normal in a marriage and spiritual warfare? 
Well, in preparation for the book, I read like 20 books on spiritual battle. And then I started to keep a chart. I, I wonder to myself, with all of these great books on spiritual battle, were there any indications of spiritual opposition that made everybody's list? Were there anything that made everybody's descriptors of spiritual battle? And I came up with what I call the power five. And then I also had an honorable mention list, which was some <laughs> mentioned them, but not everybody mentioned them. So uh, here, here are the top five indicators, Scott, that I would say couples just need to be aware of. And, and the first one is anger. Now, listen, anger is part and parcel of being married, and anger is part of being a parent. I mean, you just get times when you're upset. That's not in and of itself spiritual battle. But when you can't let go of the anger, you know, you go to bed angry, you wake up angry. It's like I can't shake how upset I am at my spouse. I, I, I can even – I try to rationalize it away. I can't do it. I am just really upset. And I think this is what Paul's saying. Deal with your anger before the sun goes down as not to give the devil a foothold. So if that anger is perpetual, I, I can't get rid of it. I cannot shake this anger. Then I think our spiritual antennas go up and we think, man, I, I need to start looking at this through spiritual lenses. Not to say that every time you get angry at your spouse, that's spiritual battle. But if it's perpetual, then I think our antennas go up and we need to respond to it in spiritual ways, not just relational ways. Okay. What what else is in your top five? Uh, a hatred of Ohio State. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Number two is a sense of impending doom. Like all of us wrestle with anxiety, right? Um, we want to give more to church, but we wonder if our budget can sustain it. Um, we want to switch jobs because this job is kind of killing us a little bit, our marriage. Uh and it's okay to have anxiety. I wouldn't say that's necessarily spiritual battle. What spiritual battle is this sense of impending doom. Like if we give by faith, it's going to ruin us. If we switch jobs, it'll be financial ruin. If I stop working to stay home with the kids, it's going to be the end of us. With that kind of fatalistic thinking, I, again, I think our spiritual antenna go up. And again, we say, boy, we are just imagining the worst over and over and over and over and over, and I just wonder where faith comes in. I wonder where trusting God comes in, right? So anxiety in and of itself isn't necessarily spiritual battle, but if I always imagine the worst-case scenario and never take steps of faith, that might be because Satan's trying to stir the pot. You make a connection that I thought was really interesting between sexual intimacy and possible demonic activity. Like, What should couples look for? In a, in a marriage related to that? Well, so we all know that sex is just, it, it's um, a very intimate form of communication, and it kind of is a litmus test for the health of the entire marriage. Like, like I like to think of it as a thermostat, uh, as a thermometer, not a thermostat. Hollywood would tell you sex is a thermostat, right? It turns up the heat. You can even have vast differences between you and this person, but if the sex is good, the intimacy is good. I think sex is more like a thermometer that registers the temperature of the marriage. So when you're in, um, you're being sexually intimate with your spouse, it starts to surface um, selfishness. It starts to surface a little bit like, am I other-centered or is it just all about meeting my own needs? And I think... Uh, 
it's a great test to see if I'm putting Jesus first, if, if I'm putting my spouse first. So I have a bunch of statistics in there about, um, and, and it's kind of wild to write about this, obviously, but you know how quickly a man achieves pleasure being sexually intimate compared to a woman. For a man, it's anywhere from three to five minutes. For a woman, anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Wow. Right? So, so, so think about that. For a guy, I achieve pleasure in four minutes. I can immediately think, well, I bet you the fourth quarter just started. (laughs) You know what I mean? And your wife, your spouse, is not even close to being halfway to achieving pleasure. So here is what is supposed to foster intimacy. But I think Satan steps in and just says you know, to the wife, boy, that's all he cares about. He just cares about himself. Because you're not even close to being satisfied, and he's already distracted, falling asleep, or literally leaving. So what is meant to foster intimacy now is a strong wedge against a couple. So when we speak at these marriage conferences, I'm shocked how many couples no longer have sex. Hmm. That, that they're like, hey, this is too confusing. I'd rather go to porn I'd rather go to uh, fantasy novels because then I don't have to think about anybody else but myself. I can just uh, you know, get satisfied and not have to be other-centered. And sex is inherently other-centered in a biblical framework, and that's where we are countercultural the most. That's, re- that's really helpful, really insightful. Uh, Tim, one last question here. G- give our listeners, a, if you could, a concrete example of a couple that moved from just having normal disagreements to showing signs of spiritual warfare. I think, I mean, you, you have you have a handful of these couples that you that you cite in the book. Um, I'd love for you to just tell us about one of those and maybe how they addressed it too. Yeah, so let me give you. I'll be honest and share one from my own marriage. And obviously, you clear all of these with your spouse, Sean. And you guys know this, right? You you clear this. You only don't do it once publicly, and you never make that mistake ever again because your spouse <laughs> says you shared what in front of a thousand people. Excuse me, heads up. Uh, so we were literally leaving for LAX to speak at a family life marriage conference. Uh, just as we're leaving. Uh, Noreen checks for some reason, checks under the sink, and the pipes are leaking underneath the sink. But we've got to go catch a flight to LAX. And you know how crazy LAX is. So now, you know, what are we supposed to do? So now we're driving in the car, and it's dead silent. Now, I make it very clear in the book, I don't think Satan took a wrench and (laughs) unloosened the pipes underneath my sink, but he wants to use it for fodder to separate us. So as we're driving, Noreen and I are both having thoughts, right? And again, in the book, I I justify using the research of Clint Arnold that Satan can plant thoughts in your mind. He can't read your mind. He's not omniscient. But there's a lot of biblical evidence uh, from King David to Jesus that Satan can plant thoughts in your mind. So as we're driving LAX, to speak at a marriage conference, here are the thoughts Noreen's having. How many times did I tell Tim, you got to fix the pipe underneath the sink? How many times have I asked him to do that? And now we have to leave and it's leaking. Now we're going to have to call somebody, try to get him in our house to fix it. This could have been, this should have been done well in advance. I'm driving to the car 
thinking, I know Noreen's mad at me about the pipe, but come on, I, I'm trying to finish a book. Uh, I have a teaching load. There are a million reasons. And by the way, I wanted to hire a plumber, and Noreen wanted to save money and have us do it. So you see how Satan's doing that? He's saying each one of you is justified in your anger towards the other, and you're frustrated with each other. And I'm going to use that to get a foothold because I want you distracted as you're heading to speak at a marriage conference. So now Noreen and I are in silence the entire trip. We get on the plane. We're still kind of silent with each other, upset. We're making these emergency phone calls to get the pipe fixed because we don't want water leaking for an entire weekend. Then finally, we're in the hotel room. And this is what's funny about speaking at Christian marriage conferences. Hey, it's seven o'clock. You need to go down to the ballroom. Whether you're doing well or not, there's a whole ballroom waiting to hear from you as a speaker couple. So I finally turned to Noreen and I said, Anne, uh, I, I'm sorry I didn't fix the pipe. That was a spiritual process for me to admit that, right? And But right now, we need to really focus on those other people in our marriage. So I, I think we need to pray for protection right now. I think this is a spiritual battle. And Noreen said, boy, I agree. And so by faith, you know, we both took each other's hands and just claimed our authority as believers and said, Satan, if you're trying to stir the pot between us, we absolutely, in the name of Jesus, ban you from planting thoughts in our minds that are not charitable towards each other. And that's the kind of spiritual. And then, then we needed to talk about why the pipe wasn't fixed, right? That is an imagined bullet prayer. But, but that kind of an attitude is like something else is happening because I'm really upset about this more than what I think I even should be. Now, that, that's really insightful. I, th- I appreciate you being so specific about the, not, not only the situation as it arose, but how you addressed it. In, and recognized it for what it was and dealt with it accordingly. Um, but, but you see, Scott, I could have I could have done it in a way that would have given Satan even more ammunition. For example, I could have just said to Noreen, "Hey, and I, I think this is spiritual battle. We need to pray about it because I think this is Satan trying to divide us." Where I think Noreen's thinking, "And it's you not fixing the pipe, <laughs> right? Let's not let's not wipe this away." All spiritual battle. So it was really important for me to listen to the convicting power of the Spirit to say to Noreen, Noreen, you're right. You asked me weeks ago to address this, and I, I just didn't do it, and I do apologize for that. See, if I wouldn't have done that, Satan could have said, oh, and here he is again, Mr. Defending Your Marriage wants to sweep it all underneath the rug of spiritual battle and not own anything. I think it was important for me to step here, up. Here. And to say, hey, you know what, I, uh, I I should have taken care of it, and I'm sorry I didn't. Yeah, had you not done that, I'm not sure how that seven o'clock session would have gone uh, with <laughs> with the two of you working together on that. Well, I say to I say to couples, how many of you have had an argument on the way to the conference? And people raise their hands. I said, imagine having an argument on the way to speaking at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something tells me that might not be the first time that's happened. Um, oh, God, come on. I am a mature right. Christian. Sorry, that must have been an isolated episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, thank you so much for being with us. This is incredibly insightful stuff. I want to recommend uh, your book again to our, re- to our, to our listeners, uh, Defending Your Marriage by Dr. Tim Muehlhoff. Uh, and it's so insightful. Really appreciate the work that's gone into this. And uh, gosh, I just highly recommend the book. 
So Tim, thanks so much for being with us and for the insight that you've provided today. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. You bet. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. And thanks so much for listening. Remember, think biblically about everything.